0: This
1: episode of New Politics was recorded on the 12th of October, 2021,
0: and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the greenwashing of News Corporation and the Morrison government. And New South Wales lifts most of its restrictions, but are they lifting these far too early? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, the man who shot Liberty Valance. There's been a lot of greenwashing going on in federal politics with News Corporation and the Business Council of Australia now fully on board with climate change action. They're looking for as many environmental policies as possible to promote and they've finally jumped onto the bandwagon that left the station about 15 years ago, but it's better late than never. In the lead up to the 2019 federal election, they pushed really hard against any form of climate change action, fully promoting the Adani coal mine, supporting the message that Bill Shorten was the bill Australia couldn't afford, erroneously claiming Labor's climate policies were going to be like a $600 billion carbon tax, electricity prices were going to go up by 78%, thousands of jobs were going to be lost, and economic growth was going to be shattered. But just two years later, in a conversion that goes way past the road to Damascus, the Business Council of Australia is pushing for emissions reductions by 45 to 50% by 2050, And in comparison, in 2018 they suggested that even going to 35% reductions would completely destroy the economy. News Corporation is now championing climate change action in their newspapers, pushing Mission Zero by 2050, how Australia could be the world number one in the new global green economy, pushing the green and gold narrative wherever possible and trying to get the most pure colour of green that money can buy. Now, it's pretty obvious that this is a total about face on climate change action by the conservative forces in Australia and purely for political purposes, but will the public buy it? The public may buy it. The public is swinging towards climate
1: change in a big way. And we've brought this up several times. Tony Abbott loses the safe seat of Warringah as an ex-prime minister, thanks to the uh, very pro-climate policies favoured by the voters of the seat of Warringah. I've said this before, Zali Stegel is probably 60 or 70 percent in agreement with a lot of Liberal Party policies. This isn't a criticism as such. This is just an observation. I'm not saying that she's a Liberal plant because the dumbest plant you could do would be against the next Prime Minister in a safe seat. But I am saying that a lot of her policies outside of the environment and environmental policy would line up fairly evenly with at least some members of the Liberal Party. And that's perfectly fine. It's it's a safe Liberal seat, or it was a safe Liberal seat. And the voters were more than likely going to vote for someone who agreed with them in more than just the one thing. That There was no way they were going to put through a uh, radical green candidate, for example. Even if they agreed with the environment policies, they're, they're not going to agree with the rest. I think... News Corp and the Business Council of Australia are acting very pragmatically. And if it's too pragmatic, the public might pick that up. I think they're starting to realise that if the environment degrades too much, there will be no economy to speak of. I think too, that it is partly, as I think you alluded to, an attempt to stop people swapping their votes away from the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party is actually under a bit of attack, not only by Labor, not only by the Greens, but by other right-wing candidates. Some of who are more extreme, but who might swing votes away and towards smaller parties like One Nation and United Australia Party. They'd be worried about losing some of those rural seats to independents who they might not be able to rely on the votes as much as their own people. It's hard to tell, of course, how serious this is, but it's something that they would be looking at. So to ensure that they keep enough votes, I think that they are making the right noises for the right people. And if they get a couple of swinging voters who are not sure because of the environment, all the better for them, electorally speaking, of course.
0: Now, some of our listeners with absolutely long memories might be saying, well, haven't we heard this story before? And they would be absolutely correct. In the lead-up to the 2007 election, News Corporation gave a lot of prominence to climate change issues and the environment, but that was only because the Howard government was starting to shift ground and wanted to match the climate change issues that the Labor Party was talking about and the issues that were starting to take hold within the electorate. And of course, as soon as that election was over in 2007 and with Labor winning that election... News Corporation dropped their support for climate change action and slowly went back to attacking anything that resembled an emissions trading scheme, carbon pricing or a carbon tax. Now, in 2006 and 2007, their promotion of climate change action wasn't as vociferous as it is now, but it's a clear sign that they're doing their best to get Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party over the line at the next federal election. And win or lose, they'll go back to attacking climate change action and the environment after the election that's what they've done in the past and history suggests that they'll do it again in the future. There's a story
1: today where uh, Scott Morrison was claiming and I wonder if he got it from us because I mentioned this as a possible factor he might use a couple of podcasts ago. 14 days in quarantine probably wasn't worth him going to the COP26 conference. Prince Charles poured scorn On that. So it'll be interesting to see if that did actually change Morrison's mind. And it will also be interesting to see the rhetoric of the Prime Minister, who has very much built the climate skeptic coal is good for humanity. The economy needs to be strong, otherwise, we can't do anything. It'll be interesting to see if his rhetoric changes. Now, we know he's a man who is happy to change his opinions and denied that he held the opposite, even with videos and audio evidence. So it's going to be very
0: interesting to see him work his way through this. Well, it will be interesting to see what happens to all of those people that... Scott Morrison and the Liberal National Coalition have been cultivating over the past eight years since they formed government back in 2013. But since 2013, they've repealed the carbon pricing legislation and that was successful in reducing greenhouse emissions at that time. They failed to implement the National Energy Guarantee. They abolished the Climate Commission. They removed incentive programs for renewable energy. They actually used funds allocated for renewable energy to promote fossil fuel production. They've also championed a gas-led recovery. They claim that electric cars were going to see the end of the weekend holidays. I could go on for much longer, but they actually pushed carbon sequestration as a solution, even though it hasn't worked anywhere in the world, and they use the technology, not taxes slogan wherever possible. For over eight years, the Liberal National Coalition have been an enemy of the environment movement, and they've done everything possible to deter action on climate change but a month or two before an election they're trying to make it seem like they're the kings of climate change could we see the question on the first day of the next election campaign who do you trust on climate change as one of their key election messages even though they've done everything possible to stop action on climate change it worked for john howard with the economy back in the 2004 election could they use the same dishonesty in the next election campaign
1: Almost certainly. There's
0: not much they're not above. And of course,
1: Labour has the challenge of people like the mining unions, the CMFEU, some of the manufacturing unions that use chemical processes that aren't good for the environment. Labour has to protect those members. Now, of course, the best way to protect them is to transition them out of those industries into more environmentally and economically sustainable ones. But there's a lot of fear in that. There's a lot of management in that. And Labor hasn't really, at this point, started to allay the fears and suspicions of those members. A lot of those potential members vote for the Liberal Party. Uh, There was a very good quarterly essay uh, this month on the Liberal Party's adoption of the working class as a way to attract voters. And of course, on the other side, Labour has the inner city types who are very much in favour of getting rid of mining and getting rid of forestry and getting rid of those environmentally bad industries. And that any Labour leader has this challenge. And it's possibly not insurmountable, but it's not an easy solution. Liberal Party too has challenges between its members that it needs to balance as well. But they don't get Portrayed in the media in the same way, uh, for whatever reason. It's a challenge for Labour. And if they can surmount the problem by keeping two diametrically opposed groups, they're not quite factions, because I don't think a lot of them are officially aligned, but two diametrically opposed groups, happy and, and satisfied with the outcome, they'll get a lot stronger.
0: It is a balancing act for the Liberal National Coalition and also for the Labor Party as well. So both major parties will have to do some sort of balancing on climate change and the environment. But definitely for the federal government, this is all about repositioning their, you know, I can't say what their environmental credentials are, but it's all about balancing all of their credentials in the lead up to the next election. It also does send out the message that their qualitative research is showing that climate change is a large electoral issue. Labor has turned up to each and every election since 2001 with substantial environmental and climate change policy. Now, it might not be enough for... The environmental movement, and who knows, it might not even be enough to address climate change issues, but at least they're the ones who turn up at every single election with a suite of policy changes. The Liberal National Party, they've essentially done nothing at all, but now they're trying to turn all of their denialism and lack of action from over the past, well definitely over the past eight years since they've been in government, but it also goes back to 1996 when John Howard won the federal election as well. So that's going back 25 years. They're trying to turn around their history of denialism and lack of action from the past 25 years, all within the space of a few months. I can't believe that the big coal miners are willing to
1: spend the hundreds of millions of dollars to transition out. And one of the practices of large capitalist organisations is that they start off as innovators, And coal mining was innovative in 1795 and then through to 1830 when steam became the major form of uh, transport and manufacture. It was innovative back then. It's no longer innovative. They talk about new ways of innovation, of course, and it's tweaking around the edges. In the end, it's still an expensive, dying dirty way of generating power when there are other alternatives. Lithium mining in the Northern Territory may help this with uh, the batteries. Solar, and Australia has abundant solar energy just shining down on it. Gas is not as innovative or cutting edge as they're trying to tell us it is. We've been mining gas for a century at least, and it has some of the problems. So as capitalist industries stop being innovative, they become almost reactionary and try and stop new innovations coming in. And of course, the coal industry with steam was challenged by the horse industry and the sailing ship industry. And I'm sure when horses came in, there were people on foot saying, oh, it's too fast and it's too dangerous and you still have to feed the horse. And so that makes it expensive. And that's just the nature of the way industry changes.
0: All sorts of industries need to transition as new technologies come on board and the power industries, uh, they will definitely have to go through transitions as well. It's just that we're not clear what this federal government is trying to transition from and what is trying to transition into. But we are getting a clearer picture about why Scott Morrison doesn't want to go to the COP26 climate change forum in a few weeks time. Climate change politics, it's been Problematic for all sides of politics for some time now, but it's starting to cause problems within the coalition. There's a chance of a few defections from the Liberal Party and the National Party and become independent MPs, and that would mean that the government would slide into a minority position. And you wouldn't want to be overseas when this sort of thing happens. And and also the other factor is that a prime minister can't call an election when they're overseas. So I think these actions point to. Scott Morrison still wanting to keep his options open to call an election before the end of this year. I still don't see this and I still don't think that he'll call an election this year. But going overseas at this time definitely removes that option. So seems like he's stuck at the moment. Morrison does actually need to go to COP26 to boost his environmental credentials, even though they don't actually exist. But if he does go to COP26 and he's overseas, there might be a lot of turmoil in the coalition while he's away, and he definitely won't be able to call an early election either. So he's got problems either way. He's wedged himself.
1: If he goes, he'll be humiliated. If he stays, they'll humiliate him without him really being able to stand up for himself. Not that standing up for himself is something he does terribly well, unless he's in a position of advantage. I think you're right. I think he'll stay. I think it is in the back of his mind to call an early election. And it is purely at the prime minister's prerogative to do this. What prime ministers love to do is surprise the opponents. Because if you're a little bit more prepared and you catch them at a weak moment, that gives you that advantage. I think too, the main reason he's not going is that lack of courage he consistently displays when courage is required, which is To be really fair, quite rare amongst Prime Ministers. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon where you can join the discussion. Up next, New South Wales has the Freedom Day that so many other states already have, so what's the big fuss all about?
0: New South Wales has had its own version of Freedom Day and the media has been celebrating this by showing scores of people doing their shopping at retail stores, going off to see hairdressers and meeting friends at the pub and pushing the message that New South Wales is leading the nation out of the pandemic. All of this might be sounding a little bit strange to the people of Western Australia, Queensland, South Australia and Tasmania where they've been having their Freedom Day every single day for most of the past 15 months. They've controlled COVID cases carefully and vaccinated their populations as quickly as the supply coming in from the federal government allow them to. Again, the media is using this as an opportunity to attack the governments of Western Australia and Queensland. And this is a message that's getting a great deal of support from the federal government that they need to open up to New South Wales and Victoria. And ignoring the fact that South Australia and Tasmania have got exactly the same policies. This pathway out of this pandemic has still got a long way to go. While the media is focusing on shops being opened and people all going back to the pub to have a drink, they're still ignoring the fact that there are still 360 COVID cases in New South Wales and 5 deaths today, as well as ignoring all of those people still in hospital and intensive care units all across New South Wales. Being in government is a balancing act between the interests and well-being of the community and the interests of business. But Is the state of New South Wales opening up too quickly or have they got that balance right? When you look at the real
1: figures, it's not 70% of the population that has been vaccinated. It's 70% of the eligible population that has been double vaccinated, which takes us down to about 56% that means 44% of people haven't been vaccinated. Now, there are some of those who uh, have chosen not to for personal reasons. That is a discussion we might have one day. There are those who can't get vaccinated because of other underlying health issues, which prevents them getting a vaccination. And of course, there's a lot of people who just can't get them because the government at both a state and a federal level made panicked decisions short-term decisions 40,000 doses were diverted from the Hunter Valley to go to year 12 students so that they could run the HSC a similar amount apparently went from far western new south wales these both became covid hotspots and people who wanted to be vaccinated couldn't get them and had to wait weeks so Just on that whole, we're getting everybody vaccinated, they've failed uh, and they've opened up too early. Of course, the trouble is they closed down too late. They dithered for two weeks when the Delta strain came through in Bondi by not closing down then. They waited two weeks and the virus took hold and we are still on 500 cases a day, which is three and a half thousand cases a week. I don't know how this is really seen as acceptable, except that thanks to Providence, we still have much lower cases than a lot of the rest of the world.
0: Well, we know that the media is a bit of a circus act, but the media has been celebrating returning these freedoms. It's almost as though we've been living on Robben Island for the past 27 years and we've just been released. and Yes, living with restrictions and being under curfew wasn't so easy, but it wasn't so difficult either. And, and I realised that it's been difficult for many businesses. So I'm not just going to say, well, bad luck and get over it if you're a business. There was support available to businesses from both the federal government and the New South Wales government as well. But humanity is based around people. It's not just based around businesses. And we live in a community, not just within an economy although the two do go hand in hand but the new New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet he immediately shifted the conversation over to business by emphasising that the pandemic is an economic crisis as well as a health crisis and now has shifted over to a business first approach and that's one reason why we're not receiving as much information about the case numbers or what's going on within the New South Wales hospital system because All of that is bad news, and bad news gets in the way of opening up the economy. Case numbers will go up, according to the Doherty Report, in about 20 or 30 days' time. That also means that there will be more people in ICUs. The death rates will go up as well. Politically, this is a high-wire act for the New South Wales government and also for the federal government. that has been quite supportive of the New South Wales government. The opening up process has been pushed for the Christmas retail period, which is exactly what the business community would have wanted. But if this process fails, it might not be such a happy Christmas. Our listeners in Victoria may find some cold comfort
1: in the statement by Brad Hazard, who said that we're not going to lock the whole state down, but we might have short, sharp lockdowns in areas of concern from time to time, which to me is, again, that'll be the dithering before they realise they've got to lock the whole state down for another month, probably just after Christmas. And maybe not too. It could be that people like us who look at the numbers, who look at uh, what epidemiologists have to say, who look at how the, the disease spreads through the eyes of those who know, are being way too pessimistic and things will work out. We've got to allow for that. It hasn't happened like that so far, but let's be fair, it still might. I think this whole focus on retail and pubs says a lot about the situation in New South Wales and and who are the major donors to the the governing party, which is the gaming and liquor industry, uh, the retail industry. Uh, And by gaming, I, I don't mean Far Cry and computer games. I mean the gambling industry and the property development industry. Now, again, I don't want to say every retailer and every pub owner agrees with this or is is even a part of it. But it's funny that the way Dominic Perrottet celebrated New South Wales leading the way out was rolling in a barrel of beer and and trying to tap it. He did about as
0: good a job as I would. Well, that's also been a big feature of this lifting of the restrictions in New South Wales. This big push to get back to the pub. So we saw Dominic Perrottet rolling the barrel. We also saw him at the front bar of a pub with a few of his senior cabinet ministers and it was all men, there were no women there it's not just the New South Wales Premier. We also saw Anthony Albanese back at the pub as well, ordering a schooner. Dave Sharma, the Liberal MP, photographed with a beer in his hand. It was definitely something that was pushed by a politician, but it was also something that was prominent within the media. The ABC, 7, 9, 10, they all featured people back of the pub, pub owners, bar owners, and it's almost like we're a nation of alcoholics. And until you realise that it's the Australian Hotels Association that's been making this big push for everyone going back to the pub, getting back and opening up the economy, and that they are regular donors to both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party as well, sure if people want to go back to the pub, that's all fine. But still, you'd think that in the context of higher daily case numbers and hospital staff still working around the clock to manage COVID cases in hospitals and intensive care units. And, you know, I don't want to spoil the fun for all of those politicians and sound like a party pooper, but I thought that it would have been more wise to have a more nuanced approach to all of this.
1: A party is no good if an ambulance has to turn up to it. It generally tends to ruin most parties. And the going back to the pub, and that's great. And as a performer, I'm itching to get back into performing in pubs and clubs. And and I very much enjoy it. And it's something that I am really looking forward to do. But I want to be sure that it's safe not only for the people listening to us, but the staff behind the bar. And I think opening up as they have with wild queues at midnight. A lot of pubs and nightclubs opened at midnight on the Monday they opened. Kmart opened at midnight on the night they opened. I think that a much more measured and controlled and gradual opening up would have helped.
0: Now, I'm not against opening up. I'm not pro-opening up. The issue that I have is that I want the economy opened up when it's safe. And I'm still not convinced that it's, it's safe to open up. The economy and society does have to open up at some point. I'm not convinced that this is the right point. But this whole process is all feeding into the narrative that commenced a few months ago, and we've talked about this on the podcast in previous episodes. is creating this division that the Liberal Party is the party of freedoms, opening up society, being able to go to the pub, Whereas on the other side, it's the Labor Party that is the party of lockdowns, closures, anti-business, and they're the ones who will stop you from going to the front bar if you want to have a drink and enjoy yourself. And I'd say that strategically, we'll probably see more stories in the media about opening up the economy, cafes, picnics, freedoms, and less about hospitals, case numbers and COVID deaths, because who wants to hear about that when you're trying to have a good time and you've got an election to win as well. And in the context of the next federal election, we do have to remember that this lifting of restrictions has just happened in New South Wales. Victoria still has a long way to go before it can open up. But all of the other states around Australia have been open for a long, long time. Will This process that's now happening in New South Wales, will this be enough for the electorate to forget about the incompetence on vaccine rollout and eight years of corruption and mismanagement? The Labor Party hasn't been able to capitalise on eight years of poor government. And that's not just my opinion. Labor has lost the past two elections that they should have won in 2016 and 2019. Definitely the 2019 election they should have won. We could argue about whether they should have won the 2016 election or not. But does the Labour Party have the political skill to prosecute the case for change at the next election, which seems like it is coming up soon?
1: There's a problem in
0: the communication
1: of Labour. When you line up the Labour front bench against the Liberal front bench, you have very significant figures, very substantial figures, like Anthony Albanese, like Penny Wong whose name keeps getting mentioned as a future prime minister, even though I don't think she's interested in the job whatsoever. She would make an excellent prime minister, but I don't think that will ever happen. Mark Dreyfus, one of the best shadow attorneys general we've ever had. Uh, Jim Chalmers, intelligent, articulate, smart, mature people who are across their portfolios. And I've only picked four pretty much random. There are, there are plenty of others. If you're listening and you were hoping that I was mentioning you, I don't want to mention the whole front bench because I will definitely forget someone, but know that you're in there too. Compared to the liberal front bench led by non-entities and, and I wish I wasn't saying this, I'd love to have an equally matched parliament because that's where good governance comes from, where you have parliaments that have strong governments and strong oppositions who really hammer out ideas. Now, the mainstream media gives the opposition less time, generally, but not always. Whoever Kevin Rudd used to help with his communications worked very well. They were able to push the government off the front page and keep the Kevin 07 slogan in people's heads. I suspect that federal labour should look at and maybe even get some of the people in Western Australian labour who were able to push the message, or Queensland Labour, where Anna Palaszczuk not only won but increased her majority. Dan Andrews, despite having consistently bad news in Victoria, remains incredibly well-liked, popular and respected, and he is a bit lucky in that he's got a terribly weak opposition, possibly the worst in Australia. But the message they put through, they're not relying on that weak opposition. And I think federal labor is hoping that the government will trip up again and again and again, forgetting that they will be protected by most of the mainstream media. So labor really needs to sit down now and work out how to get a good message across. And of course, sometimes they have a good message and it still doesn't work. And that's something that labor has to think about.
0: That's it for this New Politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis.